we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 201 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I'm your host, Trevor. If you're joining us for the first time, normally this is a podcast where we have a little panel discussion about news and current affairs and things going on in the world, particularly politics. And we have a major curiosity with religion and its place in our world. But uh, our episode today is a little bit different because I'm away in Sydney and I pre-recorded this on Friday the 3rd of May. So it's being released a few days later. So if something extraordinary happened and we don't mention it, the reason is it was pre-recorded. So with me on this occasion is Harris Sultan, who is an ex-Muslim atheist who is running for the Secular Party and has written a book and he's done a bunch of interesting things. So uh, Harris, welcome aboard to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Trevor. Very good. So You've got a number of things that we'll talk about, but I guess people just sort of need to know who you are and where you've come from. And, you know, you, you were born in Pakistan in Lahore in 1983, and you're an actor and a talent agent, and you've performed in a few programs that people might be aware of, a few famous ones. <laughs> yeah, the, well, that was a while ago. I mean, um, I'm, 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 I... I I am a talent agent, so I do find work. That's that's what I do for a living. I do find my actors work in TV commercials and TV series, etc. And uh, back in the day, I I also happened to get some guest roles and shows like Sea Patrol and Neighbors and Utopia. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, but I, these days I I have put that um, you know uh, at the um, at the bottom of my list to do things. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. And you're. You were born and raised a Muslim, but you are no longer. So you had quite a journey, I suspect, from moving from being a, a God-fearing or, or, or uh, well, do they do Muslims refer to themselves as God-fearing or? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's very, look, it's very similar to Christianity. I mean, the terms, some of the terms that I use are very similar. Like, you know, you must fear God. I'm a God-fearing person. A God-fearing person is recognised as something good being religious is synonymous with with being good um and um uh, you know all, all these things that you have to do they're, they're quite they're quite similar to christianity i mean obviously they're both are monotheistic um religions i i was i was born obviously i was born and i was told that i'm a, uh, i'm supposed to be a muslim mm. um and my my family was somewhat very moderately religious. I mean, they obviously were God-fearing people and they would believe in God and Muhammad being the perfect man. Um, but they but, but, but they weren't totally um, what you would see as hardcore religious people. Um, I, on the other hand, in my teenage years, um, became quite, um, quite fundamentalist. Luckily, that phase didn't last very long. Mm. I almost became a jihadi as well. And that's back in 99 when I was uh, something like 15, 16 years old. Um, and I've written that in my book in detail. And my whole journey away from Islam, um, I've, I've, I've tried to um, put that in my book. And hopefully I did a good job 
um, yeah, it, 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 it went through ups and downs, but my main problem was, as I was um, growing up, uh, was the fact that, okay, I can't be a hypocrite. That was that, and throughout my life so far, that, that question has always uh, defined who I am. Um, we all have certain beliefs that we hold privately, and then uh, either through societal pressure or just the peer pressure, or whatever that is, we, we, we can't express all of our views in public. And that's when I think one should ask them, themselves a question that do I really want to be a hypocrite, that I believe something privately, but either I don't admit it or I don't act upon it publicly. Mm. So that was um, always a question with me that, okay, well, Islam forbids me from, uh, you know, um, from being, um, you know... Uh, intellectually honest, I guess. So you, you've got a strong uh, line of intellectual honesty where if a... If if something takes yeah, you on a certain view, you have to follow it through to what the conclusion must exactly. be. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and yeah. and and also um, Islam is quite clear, and I've, uh, there's a chapter I've written on baggage of religion. That it's not just the fact that whether you believe in a God and Muhammad being the perfect man or not, but it, but there's so many tiny details that a lot of Muslims and these moderate Muslims mm. they ignore. You know, like I mean, things mm. like uh, listening to music or enjoying. Um, uh, art um, or depiction of uh, living things in in a form of a picture. All of these things through Hadith li- literature have been forbidden in Islam. And if you if you truly follow Islam, your life becomes very very challenging. At least in this day and age. I mean, it might have been easier back in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Um, but these days, I mean, we, we we have mobile phones in our hands all the time, and even some of the hardcore literalist. Muslims have actually been um, have have modified their religion, and they they ignore the fact that okay, this is a picture of an hour uh, of of a of a human being. Um, all of the, the drawing of another living living thing is actually uh, mm-hmm. forbidden in Islam. There, there, there's a very famous Sahih Hadith, the authentic Hadith, that um, uh, the the, uh, the 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 picture makers will be um, the gravest of the punishments. On the judgment day, will be given to the picture maker, image makers, yeah. um, and, and and even these hardcore Salafi Muslims, they ignore that because it's almost impossible. Yes. So that was the, the turning point for me as well. That uh, okay, my if I believe in this religion and this religion tells me to behave in a certain way, then how can I ignore this? Mm. So the, the, that phase lasted for about a couple of years, and I, as I said, I became quite a fundamentalist, and um, and then. I always have other questions in my mind, and as I said, I've written that in detail in my yeah. book. Let, we'll get onto a bit of the theology and the crazy contradictions and just um, silly ideas in a little bit, but just a bit more about your life story. So in Pakistan, your, your family, working class, middle class, upper class, what, what would, would you, would you categorise them? Yeah, well, middle class. We were not extremely rich, but we were uh, we were better than the ninety five percent of the Pakistani population. Yeah. Which is uh, uh, that doesn't mean that you know you you should you should view the top five percent of Pakistan being like the top five percent of Australia. It's not like that. I mean, it's, it, it is still it was still a very poor country. It probably still is. Yeah. Um, and, and but but we had my mother uh, was driving a car um, in in the in the late eighties and the nineties when yeah. women usually didn't drive, not because of the cultural pressure, but also because of the economic reasons as well. We went to private schools. I went to a Christian school. Uh, we had good clothes and, you know, we always uh, had food. 
right. uh, on the table, and none of these things were any issue. So we were uh, yeah. so we were reasonable middle class people. So uh, um, was that common for a reasonable middle class person to go to a Christian school? Was it, was it considered? Um, yeah. Like a lot of atheists will send their kids to religious schools in Australia because they have what I think is the incorrect belief of they'll get a better education. So was it a kind of that sort of thing where Muslims would send kids to Christian schools because they felt it was a better education system? Was that what happened? See, this is see, yeah. Well, this is a problem. I mean, and, and that's where I, I have a problem with a lot of right wingers in Australia, where they view all Muslim countries with the same lens. Now, Pakistan. Is, is quite a diverse country. It has obviously a lot of third world country problems and religious problems as well. Um, but it, you, you've got to remember that Pakistan is different from countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia or other Middle Eastern countries because it has a lot of influence. The, the, the British, uh, it was British India. So it had a lot of um, Western values. Now, majority of Pakistani uh, uh, laws are actually Anglo-Saxon laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, the, there was somewhat tolerance also coming from the Indian culture, um, the acceptance towards other uh, religions, etc. Now, up until the 80s, up until the Afghan war, the first Afghan war, the Soviet invasion, Pakistan was a re- relatively moderate Muslim country. Um, we used to, my mother tells me that we used to have hippies uh, in the 70s in the streets of Lahore and uh, Karachi and other major cities. And they used to just hang out there. And there was no... Um, religious problem at that point. Now, obviously, in the 90s, in the 80s, the the the, the petrodollar started coming in. The American um, uh, uh, weapons came in to fight against the Soviets, and there was a lot of Islamization, which was actually funded by America. The, the jihadist literature was printed in the American universities. Um, just to because America was preparing an army for the invading Soviet Union, mm. um, so so there was a lot of Islamization. We had a dictator at that point, General Zia, who happened to be an Islamist himself. Um, if it was Pervin Sharaf who was the dictator in the in the north, uh, if he happened to be a dictator at that time, then it might have been it, we might not have been as Islamized as we were in the eighties. Now, when I was growing up in the nineties, so that's when. That Islamization, the war ended in the eighty-eight, uh, in eighty-eight, and then that Islamization now from the uh, from Afghanistan, it was now seeping into the mainstream Pakistani society. So in the nineties, there was a lot of ethnic violence and a lot of religious trouble started. Now up until that point, um, Christian schools was not a problem. So a lot of other people, from even somewhat conservative religious families, um, they studied with me in a Christian school. Now Christian school, obviously, they had. Uh, uh, certain restrictions. I mean, we were not taught Christianity. When it came to religious education, we would go to the the Islamic religious, we would have a session of a class. Yeah, and then the Christians would go to um, the Bible class, um, which was all perfectly fine. You know, we lived in peace and harmony and we didn't look, well, there was, we, we still looked down upon Christian uh, students for some reason. Mm-hmm. There was obviously, if you're a Muslim in a Muslim-majority country, you have the superiority complex that, you know, God is on your side, etc. But But overall, it wasn't that bad. Um, and uh, and our families had no problem with that either. And we were, that that was not an issue. Even now, a lot of good schools in Lahore particularly were actually Christian schools. Now, why people had no problem in sending their kids to Christian schools were 
purely because of the um, um, uh, because of the standard of education. Uh, the government schools were horrible. They still are horrible, what I've been told. Um, um, you know, a lot of corruption and all the other third world countries' problems. Mm. Uh, but the private schools were better. And um, private schools were led by these Christian schools. Uh, my school was cathedral school. Um, they had uh, four or five branches at that time in Lahore. And there were some other um Christian schools as well that were doing really well, like Sacred Heart, and there's so many of them. Um, so no, it wasn't that much of an issue sending Muslim kids to Christian schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so so you had a bit of a well, you, you say towards your later years you became quite fundamentalist to some degree, but you had in your book you describe a journey that your father and you went on. Are you able to talk about that one much? Do you want? Yeah, um, yeah, that was the time um, when I think I I still look back at it and it just makes me uh, shiver sometimes that had my father been remotely conservative Muslim and left me there, Mm. uh, then it could have been a different story. So what happened was my my father and I, um, uh, my father had this friend who looked like a moderate Muslim, but Obviously, he wasn't. He was an Islamist. Um, but again, a hypocrite Islamist. I mean, he I, I had seen him going to dance parties and everything. And, um, you know, be, he he had a big, bushy beard. And uh, he, he would act very Islamic at certain points. But then, at the other hand, he would talk about women and all that, which is like, okay. Um, sounds, like a candidate, so part- sounds like a candidate for the One Nation Party in the 2019 election. <laughs> Or, or, or the Liberal Party, yeah, uh, by the looks of it. Um, the, uh, so, so anyway, so he said, okay, we're going to Kashmir. Kashmir is, those who don't know, Kashmir is a flashpoint, uh, often called as a nuclear flashpoint, uh, because that's the disputed region between India and Pakistan. And a lot of jihad against India happens through Kashmir, over Kashmir. So the, the, Kashmir is divided between India and Pakistan. And so we, there's a Pakistani admi- administra- uh, administered Kashmir, and then there's a Indian administered uh, Kashmir. So um, uh, in the 90s, a lot of jihad was being waged onto India through Pakistani Kashmir. Anyway, so my so so he said, "Let's go to Kashmir. It was a beautiful place. We'll go and have a look." And my father was like, "Okay." So we, we thought it's going to be a vacation. Um, so we just went there. And uh, when I sat in the bus, um, it was all men, all very religiously conservative looking men with big beards and I was like okay that doesn't look too too much fun but let's have a look so we went there so we, we went to a camp uh, it was a hidden quite a secluded camp we had to hike a mountain for like I don't know three or four hours uh, and then we got to this place and um, we were all briefed okay where we were what was happening and then my, we realized my father realized instantly that this is a Jihad recruitment um, camp, um, and in a, in a not a very big place, probably I don't know. I still look at it; it's probably maybe thirty or forty square meter, one big room, and there were hundred people cramped in there, all lying on the ground, and um, it's, uh, it, it's pretty cold up there too. Um, and um, anyway, so we were all there, and all of a sudden, you know, I was in the middle of this quite primitive place. Um, and the next day we slept there and I was like, I just wanted to get out of there. But at the same time, uh, it's not because I was re- re- 
repulsed by them because of their because they seem very religious. Because again, I was going through that stage in my life um, where I was trying to be a good Muslim, mm. um, a good practicing Muslim. But it was still pretty primitive, right? I mean, we had a nice house, nice comfortable bed, and you know, heating and air conditioning, and everything was great. And now all of a sudden, I'm eating in a big plate. We call it parat. Um, and four or five people are eating in it with their bare hands, and I just couldn't stand the sight of it. Um, and, and it was disgusting for me. So anyway, so I was repulsed by that. But the next day, Hafiz Saeed, who's, a, who's now been a declared terrorist um, by UN, came in a military helicopter, and he gave a speech. And we, there, was, there was a demonstration of um, how the, the Mujahideen, the holy warriors, fight against the infidel um, uh, Indian Army, and there was this th- this sound of gunshots was just overwhelming. And it, 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 I, as, as I said, now I think about it now. It, there was this there was this weird I could so I could associate some sort of weird romanticism with it. Um, that you know, like the, the the feeling you get when you watch when you're watching a movie, I don't, or, or, or let's just say Game of Thrones, and you know you have this enemy in front of you and then a leader comes forward and gives this overwhelming speech that just lifts your heart and you're like yeah i'm ready to die for my country or for my cause so it just kind of had a lifting experience Mm. and um and i was like i was sold i was sold in that 15 minute uh, or 20 minute whatever however long it was speech by this uh now known terrorist um, and I wanted to stay. I, I wanted to wage jihad against India. But my father, Hafiz uh, Said, he came and he was, we kind of looked, we stood out because we were wearing nicer clothes and we looked uh, different from the rest. And Hafiz Said looked at my dad and he gave um, him a nod as well. Like, okay, your, your son, is he ready to be a martyr or go fighting for his uh, for Islam and everything? Well, my dad just said, no, he's going he's gonna to join the military. What you're doing, he didn't want to offend them too much either, but at the same time, he didn't want to lose his son either. So mm. he was like, no, no, we'll send him to the military, and, you know, what you're doing is great, but, you know, he's young and he needs to go, all, all that stuff he said. So, um, so yeah, anyway, so, but, but I was kind of a bit like, no, Dad, I want to stay, but I didn't say that in front of him, but, uh, but I was still saying it. In, in, that he, my father knew that he wanted to, um, that I wanted to go, but then he gave me that death stare. I still remind him of that. Yeah. Uh, that that death stare actually saved my life. So um, so anyway, so we got out of there and I came home. And as soon as I uh, got home and the luxuries of uh, the modern life um, convinced me that, you know, I'm not ready to die for any, uh, for any holy war. Yeah. So then it sounds like at some point you started to read, um, you know, some of the new atheists, Hitchens and Dawkins and people like that. And, and then you started a process where you just stopped believing. So how, how did you start well, yeah, so, sort of investigating that side of, of things? Okay, so, so, so there's a one more major event that took place in my life at that mm-hmm. point. Now, as I said, I was uh, 15 or 16. Or I, no, I think I was 14 or 15 at that point. And then I finished my high school and then I went to a college, um, which is equivalent of uh, VC here. And then I did that. And then my mum sent me to Australia. Now, that's a turning point in my life. I was 19 when I came to Australia in 2003. Mm. Um, That's when I went to to the university. I went to Victoria University. That's where I graduated from uh, in IT. And uh, 
I, I always had questions about God, and which is why I mean I was compelled by my own mind to either be a fully devout Muslim or just leave it out altogether. And um, and that's when I discovered this is 2003. Um, now all of a sudden I was enjoying. I was having this cultural shock that okay, these people are great. You know, I mean, we thought that these are infidels and uh, horrible. A morally bankrupt people, but they seem to be doing okay. In mm. fact, they're actually better than most Pakistanis. Most of them, uh, you know, are polite. Every time you go past someone, you give someone a smile and you say good morning. And these people are clean, you know, they don't spit on the streets and they're not throwing shopping bags, even though, you know, some people do. But mm. overall, trust me, it's a lot cleaner and a beautiful country and people are overwhelmingly better. And I never experienced racism either. So in, in these two, three years, I'm just having this cultural shock. And I mean, but now I'm enjoying this this modern life, you know. Now, obviously, internet is blooming now. Mobile phones are becoming better and better. And um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking with all types of people. I'm, I'm now seeing the nightlife, which is also corrupting me in some sense. And the Muslims are going to love it, and they're going to say that this is why he left Islam because he wanted to be. He wanted to drink and dance with, uh, with you know, strange uh, yeah. men and women. Uh, but anyway, so I, I'm looking at all that and I'm saying there's nothing wrong with that. And then there was an article in the Age newspaper. I can't even remember that uh, journalist who ever wrote it. And he was he was trying to debunk Richard Dawkins' arguments point by point. And um, and I and, and I, I I had seen the documentary of Richard Dawkins before that, and the, uh, the uh, Root of All Evil, but I hadn't remembered his name. I can't exactly remember which happened first, but anyway, it was the same, uh, similar days. Uh, and, and then I looked at it, and I was like, okay. But the journalist was trying to debunk Richard Dawkins, but every, and, and you could imagine how biased that article would have been. He would have been so selective, which point of argument. He only would have picked the argument of Richard Dawkins that he would have thought that, okay, I can beat Richard Dawkins on this. Mm. And I looked at it and was like, okay, I'm agreeing more with this person, whoever this Dawkins guy is. I'm, I'm agreeing with his argument, even though the journalist is giving his own view. Um, mm. And so I looked him up after that, and I think that's when I came across his Root of All Evil documentary. Even then, I was a little bit shocked. I, now I look back and I and I realize Richard Dawkins is actually very soft, you know, like he's a right. he's, you know he's kind of like a, <laughs> okay. he's kind of like a cute old man. But at that point, when I first time when I saw it, the way he was questioning religion, I was like, no, 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 you can't talk about religion like that. Even though whatever he was saying was making sense to me. And um, so anyway, and then I became more and more, and then you know there was a, then I discovered a, this treasure trove of uh, this new atheist debates of Richard Dawkins and Hitchens. And um, I wasn't that much of a fan of Sam Harris at that point because probably he was too young at that point. And Mm -hmm. men of my age would have preferred older, uh, we can't associate wisdom with old men. So I was more attracted to uh, what Dawkins and Hitchens were saying. But anyway, um, and and then I go, then then I learned all, all my questions in my mind that I had. And now these very smart, intelligent People, well-educated people are answering those questions. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm not alone. These very smart, brilliant people also think the same way. And they also come to the same conclusions that I want to come, but I'm too afraid to come to those conclusions. And I think that's when around 2007, 2008, um, I had become a convinced atheist. Yeah. And uh, when, well, 
I assume your family knows. I mean, you've written a book. Did, is, it, is it like coming out as a gay person, like coming out as an atheist to a Muslim family? What, 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 what's happened there? How did that go down? I, I always knew that my, my mother would somewhat accept it. She wouldn't hate me in, in a way that her relationship towards me would not change over it, even though now that I've learned that how lucky I really am that my family didn't turn out to be um, like these, these other Muslim families mm. um, who, who totally disowned their children. Yes, there was, not with my mother, but with my dad, there was a bit of up and down. Um, there were periods where we didn't speak. But, you know, I was living in Australia. He was living in Pakistan. We were living independent. Uh, I, and, and that was another major factor that um, I had met my Australian partner um, by that time. And I still hadn't come out as an atheist openly, but my mother kind of knew that, you know, he, he doesn't really buy this argument, you know, like it's quite common in, in Pakistani culture or even Muslim countries, um, Muslim culture in general to bring up words like inshallah, meaning God willingly, or mashallah, by the grace of God. Uh, they, they, bring, they would bring up God in every second sentence somehow. And I would, my mother could see that I'm rolling my eyes or I'm not convinced and I'm not using those words and yeah. etc. So, but anyway, I hadn't come out openly, but, uh, but then I started coming out a lot later on. And I'll, I'll tell you why that was. But, mm. but at that point, I realized one thing that if you, if you go ahead and do it, then people around you, they, they end up accepting it. No matter what happens, they still end up accepting it. If they don't end up accepting it, if they, if they truly shut you down, um, then so be it. But on the, on the whole, people actually end up accepting it. So what matters is your conviction, how strongly you stand by it. Um, there, there was a friend I had, who, who, uh, and that's who I learned this experience from. My friend, uh, he was a Pakistani, and he ran, he eloped and married the girl. And both the, the parents, of, uh, the girl and the boy, were against that marriage, and they both disowned these kids. But they went ahead and they did it anyway. But when the kids were born, a couple of years later, both parties, both, both, the, both the parents from both sides, kind of ended up accepting them, and now they're living. What, was that know, was that happily. friend living in Australia, and his parents? Yeah, back, yeah he was living in Australia. Yeah. In oh, I, 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 no, no, no. But they were Pakistanis, but they were living here. But I'll tell you what, yeah. why I why I worry about Islam in Australia because Muslims here tend to be more Islamic than. Muslim in Muslim countries, and I'll, uh, and I'll give you some examples later on. But anyway, so, and I realized, okay, he did it, she did it, their parents just approved of it, but they still ended up doing okay. And and then I started experimenting that with my life, and I started saying, uh, I became more and more brazen with my arguments, and, and I realized, yeah, they would disagree, but but there's not much they can, and, and it's probably because there's not much they could do anyway. I mean, my experience would have been totally different if I was in Pakistan. I understand I either would have remained a Muslim, like a lipstick Muslim, like just, you know, like I'm, I'm just a Muslim, like most Pakistanis, they're just Muslims just per, per se, but they're not really Muslim. Um, or if I was an atheist, then I would have never come out because then my parents' attitude towards me would have been very different. And not only just your parents, your teachers, your friends, your your distant family, everyone yes. um, would have been, it would have been very different. So I was lucky in that sense that I was living in a Western country. I was financially independent and I, now I had a white Australian partner and she obviously, she, she, she would support me on this. Um, 
And I, I, if my parents had disowned me, it would not have made much difference to me. Of course, I would have been sad for not having my parents in my family, but in, in my life. But, but, and, and another thing is, this might sound very um, harsh thing to say, but it's also another thing that your parents, as they get older, I mean, they need you, they kind of need you more than you need them, per se. Like, I mean, I'm sure I would, I would feel that way when I'm, old and you know like i'm in uh, lonely and i would need more uh, you know i would want more family members in my life but but that's just a phase of life that people go through and i and i and i realize that and, and that's why i tell all the other young ex-muslims as well the first advice i give them is to is to be financially independent and then you might see some um blowback from your family but it, eventually they will come around yeah yeah you hear a lot of stories where people are just enmeshed in a in a society that's deeply religious. I hear it more on the Christian side, where they might be Mormon or they might be Seventh Day Adventist or something like that. And if they are to renounce their religion, then not only do they lose their family, but they lose their entire social network because that's all they've been doing their lives. Like with the Mormons, you know, they keep you busy in Mormon activities, and you don't have time to build friendships outside the Mormon community. So Scientology, they're all like that. They just sort of um, swamp you with their religious community and therefore extricating yourself is so much harder. So, yeah, if you've, if you've moved away, you're financially independent and you've, you, you've got a chance to create a social circle outside of your religion, then... Then you've only got the difficulty of dealing with the ideological change of mind, you know. So yeah. Yeah, but you're not that emotionally invested in them. And like, I mean, if you have a friend, if you've just met a friend who just happens to be, a, you know, on a totally different end of the spectrum, then you can cut out that friend. But now also your experience with your immediate family, if they've disowned you and you moved away from them successfully and you stood back on your feet, then you have been strengthened by that experience. So now. Yeah. Any future people with ideological differences, it wouldn't be that hard for you to dissociate, dissociate yourself with them. Yeah. Um, so, so that experience kind of helps you too. And I think the, the, the big problem that I am seeing now, because there's a wave of uh, this rise of apostasy or atheism in the Muslim world, is that this new gen, uh, this, these millennials now who are 15, 16 year, year old now, um, they have, they are exposed to a to, to this new atheism in a way that we weren't exposed, and now they're looking at it. And the the, the two kind of things that that their parents are taking them as is like teenage teenage rebellion is an age old thing, and they think okay, well that must that might just be a phase. And obviously, teenagers react in a certain way, and they you know more um, emotional at that point, and they could be emotionally more expressive, and they they come out as an atheist and, and then obviously they face the consequences um, at that stage. So um, their, their experience is different as well. Whereas if you wait, and this is why I tell all of them, become financially independent, get, finish your education, uh, stand on your feet, and then maybe start exploring the world and start becoming more brazen. But, but it's, it's a difficult thing to, it's easier said than done because I mean, if you're 18 and 17, you are being asked to fast in the month of Ramadan that is about to start in a couple of days. Mm. And you're asked to pray five times a day when you don't believe in any of those things. And, 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 and to top it all, you are a teenager. You are more interested in, you know, um, Kim Kardashian or what's the next uh, Avenger movies 
It's yeah. like so. It, it, it's it's very hard for them, and the social media turns out to be the only refuge for them where they can express their feelings. So and you're, I think it's, you're, uh, um, you're you're advising these people through your organisation of ex-Muslim atheists. Is that where you're having these conversations? Well, ex-Muslim atheists now has multiple admins. I barely run it. I did find I I I I, I did create it for that purpose that ex-Muslims can actually communicate especially, obviously, Indian and Pakistanis, because I knew that if I come out, then these uh, are the people who would be most interested in what I say. Um, And obviously, you need a little bit of an older person who who you can relate to. Um, And, um, and yeah, that and I've seen, I I thought initially that I would be, you know, most, I would be just abused left, right and centre, but now there are thousands of atheist ex-Muslims in Pakistan and India who communicate uh, through to me, through that page, and through my other uh, online profiles. Right. And, um, and, and, and it feels great that they, they, they can very, again, as I said, because it's a very critical age, it's a, it's a teenage years, these are very important years of your life, and they shape your future, and people can go into depression very quickly because of this Um and um, I, I, I was getting depressed at one stage as well, reading some of these stories because um, I'm feeling bad for them. That here I am enjoying my life, and these these kids, you know, these 16, 17 year old kids, they have nowhere to go and nowhere to express their. Uh, and I still can't offer them any solutions. I mean, I still, as I said, this is my only advice that I give them: just finish your studies, try to be independent, and then you can travel the world. And um, that's where. Uh, and now I'm taking my war to the next um, uh, in, in, into the next phase because we have people here who want to ban people coming from Muslim countries, mm-hmm. um, and that's where I have a problem. And a lot of Muslims don't realize that I'm actually I sympathize with them that people should be allowed to go. Obviously, um, I have other views on that which we could go in details. Mm. Um, uh, but 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 I my my core interest is that we should give. Um, we should have special visas for apostates, religious minorities of of, uh, of, of Muslim countries. Yeah. Um, yep. there, there are Christians who are doing good. The Ahmadi Muslims who are, uh, the, who are probably the most persecuted group in, in Pakistan. Christians are doing good. Hindus are doing good. The other religious minorities are doing okay um, uh, for persecuted people from Muslim uh, Muslim countries. But there's no there's no organization for for atheists. Yeah, you know, I mean, no one. I I know some people who, who, who tried to get out and they've reached out to um, to, to Christian charities, to uh, Ahmadi charities. Then um, you know, no one is willing to help them, and I understand that because they say, well, we have our own Christians to help out first before we can go to atheists, um, and. Um, and, and yeah, so that is what I'm more in, interested in. And unfortunately, I don't believe in identity politics. But again, I have to do the same thing as well. Now I have to uh, help do more that I uh, for the atheists or ex-Muslims of Pakistan than I could, you know, help out for Christians or Ahmadis uh, of, of the Muslim world. Even though I'm fully sympathetic towards them, but I, we just don't have the resources. Yeah. So, so just again, I'm curious with your family. Like, it's one thing to be an atheist and to stop believing, but then to start, you know, an organisation, ex-Muslim atheist, and to write a book, uh, the curse of God and why I left Islam. Um, 
they just took that in their stride once once you'd come out as an atheist. Yeah, I mean, my uh, mom and dad just tell me, okay, fine, you have left Islam because there was a hope in their heart that one day I will turn back to Islam. Mm. Uh, I will come come around. Yeah, and and what um, uh, an atheist? You're actually an anti-theist or anti-theism. Um, is what your philosophy is, and and that just puts a target not only on my back but on everyone else's back too. Yeah, well, I've, I've I've had threats from people even here, and police doesn't do anything um, by people telling me that I'm they're trying to hunt my family in Pakistan, and I just and I you know I I say well yeah good luck with that because my family is here, uh, but um, right, but, but yeah I mean that's why my my family members have. Legitimate concerns. I mean, their safety could be um, threatened as well. Uh, but not only just from the safety's point of view, it's also a cultural thing that they think that, okay, you're right. I mean, you're, you're an atheist, just go do your thing, whatever you've been doing. I've been doing, I've been an atheist for, you know, as I said, near, over 10 years, and uh, I hadn't been speaking about it publicly. And then something happened and that made me uh, come out publicly and, um, and, and, you know, just wage jihad against religious indoctrination and this religious establishment. What was that? Um, but what was it? Yeah. Well, uh, in, in, in 2017, now that's what happened. A few things happened. Ayaz Azami is a Pakistani, was a Pakistani, well, still he's alive, but we don't know exactly whether he's alive or not. I, I think he is. Um, he, he was a Pakistani atheist blogger. And there was a there was a network of those who were making social media posts while they were living in Pakistan, and there was a crackdown in 2017 by the Pakistani government uh, um, to arrest these people, and they did. And Yaz Azami was the oldest out of all. He was the ringleader. He was the smartest out of all. Uh, he's nicknamed a scholar amongst the underworld uh, ex-Muslim atheist community of Pakistan. And anyway, he was arrested. Put in prison. He's still in prison. We've been told he's been tortured, beaten, um, solitary confinement for the last two years, and um, we are expecting him to be uh, his fate to be decided in the coming months. I am hopeful that he will be released, but we don't know for sure. Um, and that's why we haven't really been talking a lot about him because that just draws attention to him. If, right. if we don't want to antagonise them. Um, but anyway, so it was him, and then there was this. Um, um, uh, there was a student, you might have heard of him, his name was Mashal Khan, he was accused of being an atheist, which he probably was. He asked some very simple, nice questions, uh, like, why did God allow incest? If, if incest is so bad, then why did God allow incest? And, um, you know, in case of um, uh, the, uh, Adam's, Adam and Eve's children who ended up having sex with each other. I mean, it's, it's a very simple, logical question, right? Yeah. And that... That integrity, the, the local imam couldn't answer it, and uh, he issued a fatwa, and then it created a mob, and they and he was brutally murdered uh, in at his university campus, um, and that angered me. At the same time, that's when I created Ex-Muslim Atheist, just a page. My own identity was actually hidden initially, um, but I realized that it, you you can do a lot more if you put a face to it, because I was I was being accused of all types of things, like whoever the founder of this page is. Um, he's a he's an Hindu nationalist or an Indian agent, mm-hmm. and that's a famous uh, accusation from Pakistanis. But on on an, uh, but on a banded Muslim scale, people say, well, he's a Jewish agent, he's a Zionist, he's 
be paid by by Mossad and uh, you know all those kind of things. So I thought, okay, well, I have to put a face to it. Now people can hear me out. Now people can hear my accent with the Urdu accent, and they can tell that I do belong from Punjab and Lahore, Pakistan. Mm. And um, uh, so so yeah, so so that's when I just came out a few months after that, and I was really angry at that point, and that's the reason why I came out because. Again, it was the same problem that I had, the, the problem of hypocrisy, that I believe it's okay to live freely, free from religion, and live your life, whatever you want to do. Here I have a, you know, um, uh, a, a white Australian uh, uh, partner, and um, everything's fine. I drink alcohol, and everything's fine. But there's so many others who are not fortunate enough, and they are stuck in a religious country, and they're being persecuted. How can I live with myself? I mean, how can I hold this view privately that it's okay, you can do it, but then not do anything publicly about it? That's that is a kind of hypocrisy to me, and that's again that and that motivated me to come out and start speaking about it more publicly. There's a theme developing here, Harris, that you just can't do things halfway, can you? You've just got to go boots in, all in, by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, what? Yeah, well, what, otherwise, what is the point of it? I mean. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been a mediocre person all my life. Like, I've enjoyed just, you know, just a little bit of work, and I would never overwork myself. I would never overdo things. I, I would just, you know, I can pay my bills. That's fine. I have my views that can be confined to a close group of friends, and that's about it. We just all have a uh, laugh about it, and that's it. But then, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, lately, with the last few years, I've been just, saying, okay, well, if you do believe in something, why don't you just go full on and just go to the end and just do your best mm. and see what happens. I mean, success is not guaranteed, but at least effort is guaranteed. I mean, the effort is effort depends on, on you alone. I mean, no one else is responsible for it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's why I want to, uh, I mean, again, I, yeah, I, I guess where you're going with that is the same thing with politics. I mean, yeah, I'm saying these things, but what actually am I doing about it? I mean, Politics is the only way, is the most effective way to bring a change. I mean, as a freelance speaker, I could say anything, I could speak anything, I could speak as much as I want, but it's not really going to bring an active change. I mean, yes, we could influence politicians to change their policies, um, but they may not do it. Um, so, yeah, that, and that's why I got into politics. Yep, and so on that score, you are a candidate for the Secular Party in the upcoming election. You're a Senate candidate, so... Congratulations, and well, give us the give us the pitch, um, Harris. You know, secular party. Well, uh, full disclosure, dear listener, I uh, I was a member of the secular party, and I myself stood for the secular party in uh, the Queensland Senate race at the last election, but I resigned sort of shortly afterwards. So, um, and the same with Scott, my co-host. So. I've had, a, you know, a deep involvement with the Secular Party myself, so that's, you know, put that out there. But, Harris, tell us, you know, why did you choose the Secular Party? Why should people vote for you in the upcoming election and for other Secular Party candidates? Uh, well, okay, so, I mean, from my talks so far, you obviously would have d- developed some sort of an idea how I feel about about religions and their control over our society. Um, and secular parties seem to be the only party that I, my, my, my social views are most in line with. Um, we are somewhat, you know, left of the center, probably a little bit more on the left. We are what we, what we call classical liberal, and that's how I am. And that's what I found secular parties' policies to be. Um, and, um, 
I met John Perkins, who's the president of Secular Party of Australia. He invited me for a speech, uh, ex-Muslim conference that he did uh, earlier this year, and that's where we met uh, in person and in detail. And um, and then he asked me if I would be interested in running for the Senate again. I was very, I didn't answer him straight away. I only decided, uh, it took me a couple of months to decide because, again, it was the same problem. Like, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, myself as a freelance speaker. Mm-hmm. I can say whatever I want. I can, um, you know, I, and, and I, I, I don't have to mince my words. I don't have to worry about being politically correct. If it makes sense, if I can, if I can justify it with words and reason and rationality, then I can put it out there. But politics, to me, seemed like a a dirty business, so to speak. It's like, okay, if you have, I mean, you have to be a hypocrite to be a politician if you want to be successful. There's a lot of I mean, compromise we, we see, called for. There seems, is. I mean, yeah. and we see this time and time again. People, politicians say one thing publicly and they say something else privately. I, I, I have never lived my life like that, and I and I, I don't think I'm going to change that, and that's why I'm not going to get into politics, and that's what I thought. Um, but again, on the other hand, you, you get to think that politics is the most effective way to bring a change. I mean, I um, if I really want to do something, I have a voice, and I think seculars and humanists and the classic liberals are losing their voice in the, in the, in the politics. Uh, we see the, the left... The, the far left parties are hijacking the Labour Party and the far right parties are hijacking the Liberal Party. And we were seeing this divide and as a result, the major pol- uh, political parties are being pu- um, pushed further and further towards the extreme ends of the same uh, of, of the political spectrum. And and where are they, these people in the middle? Where are they going? And I think they are also becoming more and more pol- polarised because when... A person who sits on, on on the center, or maybe a little bit to the right, maybe a little bit to the left, when they sit there and when they see, okay, here's a leftist party that is that is trying to shut the free speech down. They are they're become they're bending over backwards just to appease other cultures, just uh, in the in the name of cultural diversity and tolerance, just in the name of it. And even though this person might hold those views, but they cannot. We cannot compromise on our freedom of speech, and that pushes that person a little bit further to the right. And the person who's a little bit further to the right is going to be pushed even further um, to the right. And same thing happens with the left. Um, the people who are um, the, the okay. So people on the left are becoming further. They're going further and further towards the left uh, when they see these. Uh, religiously motivated people now, as you see, the, the three liberal candidates who had to resign, and I was shocked. Well, not that shocked, but I think people should be shocked mm. that this is how far these these extreme views, people with extreme views, have penetrated into our mainstream political parties. That this uh, uh, Senator Veland, sorry, uh, the candidate Veland. Uh, what kind of views she made, and she was running on the Liberal Party's platform. Um, there was another guy, Killen. Uh, he, he, all, he, I think he made homophobic um, uh, statements. Um, these people are being pushed, and, and, and they're, they're coming into it. And she would have had some votes as well. And I don't know. I, I don't want to make too bold a statement, but it seems like 
maybe maybe the Liberal Party did know about it and they tried try to turn a blind eye towards it. Um, and, 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 and the leftist party people on the left who used to be on the left, I mean, as I said, like I would classify myself as a person on the left. I'm a classical liberal. I stand for yeah. uh, cultural diversity, multiculturalism. Um, sorry, the, well, the same thing anyway. Um, the religious freedom, uh, tolerance, um, all, all these classical values, feminine, mm -hmm. equal rights for women and LGBTQ friendly environment, all of these views, I, I stand by them, which, we, which are classical liberal leftist um, uh, values. But when it comes to, now that's where I see the hypocrisy of the left. When, when we see that, okay, if someone is homophobic, you condemn them, the leftists condemn them. If someone tries to express their, their religious views, we condemn them. But when it comes to Islam, that's when they all, well, no, we can't, we can't go there. Yeah. They, they, uh, they hesitate, yeah, and they shy away from making a statement. Because that's, a, and, and I think that is what's pushing people further to the right. That's because that's a persecuted minority who are oppressed. Uh, so you know, the way I describe it to people, uh, I've got a little chart on my on the Facebook page for the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. But basically, on the left. Uh, they've adopted identity politics and virtue signalling and victimhood and cultural appropriation ideas, which people like us in the centre have a problem with. And, and they've sort of abandoned free speech in the sense that they want Section 18C beefed up so that you can't say things that might be insulting. So if, if you're in favour of free speech, then you'd be looking to the right, but the right has got all these crazy conservative social values that, they are, mm. that they're a part of. So for people who don't accept those crazy left ideologies who want to be pro-free speech, yeah, there's a frustrated centre that, that just doesn't exist for that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, dissatisfying for, to try and find some, some party. But... You know, the thing about the secular party, you know, I'll, I'll give my plug for them, is when you talked earlier about being afraid in politics to mince, having to mince your words and having to sort of uh, hedge your bets a little bit and to, uh, you're worried about having, um, uh, what was the word I used at the time was... Um, Something backfiring. Like, I mean, yeah. imagine, imagine my tweet. Yeah. Now, I have made tweets and Facebook posts that these, these you know, these bending over far left, wing snowflakes i mean yeah. if they see that they'll be like hey look this is what he says and i would have a full-on reasoning behind it i mean i've yeah. written a book on this chapter and i know mm. write in detail every view that i put out there um again obviously never be the, the core of my arguments is a differentiation the separation of criticism of an ideology mm. and being bigoted towards people that is the core of our criticism and or, and what defines us I mean, it may seem confronting. And a lot of these people, these, these snowflakes, they don't even understand the difference between Islam and a Muslim. Yeah. They don't understand that. So, And that's why it's so important when we use the word Islam, so that means we're criticizing an ideology. And when we say use the word Muslim, that, that is demonizing an entire community because there are, there are very progressive Muslims as well. So, yeah, I mean, they, and imagine someone just takes out my tweet and just puts it out there and, say, and, and starts smearing me. And that's what I was worried about. And hence I was reluctant to join to yeah. start politics. So I think the secular party gives you a, a pretty free reign in that regard, but you're a dangerous person as far as the left is concerned, Harris, because the standard argument would be if, if somebody like myself, who's just white 
Anglo-Saxon male, heterosexual, um, cisgendered, you know, I would be accused of, of being a person of privilege who can't understand what it's like to be a brown Muslim and therefore mm. I can't even begin to talk about the issues surrounding them. Whereas you, on the other hand, um, you, you foil that argument. They, they can't run that one then. So uh, when it comes to that sort of um, tactic, they're stopped dead in their tracks and, and then having to deal with you on the issues um, is what they'll, they'll have to do. So you're the last thing that the left wants to hear because um, you, you present a real problem for them with their standard response. Yeah, we, and and that and that worries them, and I know that, and this is what John told me as well. That, and I understand that. I mean, what are they, what are they going to throw at me? Hey, you are racist towards brown people. Hello, look at me. I am brown. That's you, right. are, you hate Muslims. Whoa, hang on. My whole family is Muslim. Actually, there's not a single atheist in my entire family. You, in a, even not even in a distant family. You must be um, an Is- Islam. And, you must be an Islamophobe. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, now now I would refer them to read a chapter on Islamophobia on my book. So in my book, so it, yeah, and, and Islamophobe, and I just dismiss that word. It's not a correct word. It's it's it, it's a moot word. Uh, shouldn't even exist. Um, so yeah, I mean, none of these arguments, the accusations, the typical, um, you know, these bullshit arguments can stick on me. The the the, the only thing that I've experienced where you know I should keep my mouth. Uh, shut is when it comes to the uh, issues like feminism yeah. um, because they again I become the same guy that you were telling that you are yes. when you talk about cultural issues I mean that's because I'm a man uh, you're a man you can't understand what women go through and um, and, and and that's you know like I say okay fair enough you know I'm, I'm not going to talk about it and again that's one of these things that I even though I would you no know, I'm, I'm the kind of a person um you know, who, who believes in equality between genders and sexes, and I would stand by all the women again, but I'm not going to use the same argument. Hey, look, I, my mother is a woman. I love her. Because, you know, it's the same. Then they're going to say, oh, you're saying this, the, the, the thing that um, uh, every racist person says, hey, my best friend is a black guy. So, yeah. I, I mean, there's some arguments can stick, but again, as far as Islam is concerned, which is a topic that I'm most interested in, yeah. um, none of these these typical arguments can stick and um and i think this is probably why it should be hopefully would be it would be effective when we do talk about islam yep here's a tricky one for you then what about the the hijab the burqa the niqab that sort of thing where where do you stand on on that well i i i I don't support hijab on ideological grounds but i do support people's right to wear a hijab Mm -hmm. i have said it multiple times because again we have to have consistency and uh, we can't be hypocrites. Uh, if, if government or states have no business in dictating what people can and cannot wear, um, even though the, the only time when we can say we, we, we can liberate a person, a person who's genuinely a victim is when a person is being forced to wear by, by, uh, by societal pressure, which is probably not that much in Australia, but which exists in, in Muslim world, or being forced to wear by the male guardian, like a father or, or, or a husband, uh, which very well happens in, in, even in Western countries as well. Now, the three reasons why women wear hijabs, sorry, before I go into that. So 
So that's the only time when state can actually try to protect a woman and, and treat a woman as a victim in, 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 in any other case of um, uh, women abuse like you know, domestic violence. Actually, I will interrupt. There are cases where the state does, in fact, impose dress regulations on us. It happens all the time. Like, try walking down Queen Street with no clothes on. Like, they'll say, you've got to wear clothes. Or there will be yeah. other venues where a certain standard of dress is imposed and you just won't be allowed in if you are too casual. So, you know, but moot point, but keep going. Sorry, you had about three uh, things, yeah. No, 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 I'm, 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 no, I'm happy with that. So, I mean, yeah, and, and that's why you would, you, you, you would find it funny that I actually do support a nudist movement. Not that I am a nudist <laughs> myself, um, yeah. but, but again, I do say that states should not have any right to determine. But again, yeah. we can understand that being a nude can sexualize the uh, places where, which we don't want to be sexualized. And mm. obviously, I mean, nudists can't walk into a primary school. So, so there are those restrictions, and, and yeah, and I and I understand that. Um, as far as the um, the other point, uh, having a dress code is concerned, yeah, that's fine. I mean, those, those dress code codes are imposed by an organization, not by the state. I um, mean, for example, you, you know, you can't, you, you actually can go in your in your shorts and t-shirt or a singlet in a magistrate's court. There's no official punishment for it, but it's obviously you're going to get some stares and you're not going to get a favorable decision from the magistrate uh, and you might even get an earful. Um, but that, that again, um, the, the, those, those, those restrictions can be imposed by the organizations individually, but not the state at the constitutional level. Mm. That has got no business in people's clothing. Um, yeah, we can have local laws for the, for the school and county or, or so, uh, sorry, uh, council, etc. So three points that I think that people have, uh, people wear hijab. Number one is a societal pressure, as I said. Um, So a woman, it's easier if you live in a society where not wearing a hijab is frowned upon, so you can wear a a hijab. One of my good friends, um, she's a psychologist and delivered a speech in the ex-Muslim conference, uh, said she, even though she she had atheistic tendencies, or she had probably become an atheist by that point, wore a hijab just so she doesn't get stares from people um, and um, or not even get sexually harassed by people because that's another end of the spectrum. If you don't wear a hijab, then you must be calling for it. You, you must wanting to be sexually harassed. So, so to avoid all of that, she wore a hijab. Now, that's a classic example of a societal pressure. Um, the, the second example is obviously a pressure from your immediate family members, a male guardians like your father or your husband. Um, that that even though you don't want to wear it, but you have to wear it. So so, and the third reason is uh, a, a pressure from your God, from your religion. Even though you might be questioning it, but you want to please your God, and you don't want to burn in hell for eternity. Um, and that's why you are you you are wearing it. Now that we can't really do much of that. This third reason, because that just has to come from education or the total uh, flip on one's worldview. Uh, but the other two give you good grounds to speak up against hijab uh, more forcefully. That's why when people like Jacinda Ardern, when she wore a hijab, I think she spat in the face of everyone, all those feminist um, activists in countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia who who have been fighting to uh, to have freedom from wearing the hijab. Um, and and that that was I, I know she did it with good intentions, but that was uh, that was just uh, not a very well thought out uh, political stunt. But she became a hit in the Muslim world, 
good luck with that. Um, um, so yeah, so so those three reasons that I gave you are, are, are the reason why people wear hijab. Now tell me again, out of which of, which of those three reasons tell you that hijab is empowering women? Now that is the slogan of the leftist people, and that's where again I have a problem with it. these 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 new and uh, the, these neo leftist people that hijab empowers women. And well, well they would, they would, against it. They, they would say, let me play devil's advocate, they would say that no. uh, as a woman I might choose to wear it because, you know, I don't want men looking at my body and so I can, I can deny them that view and it empowers me because I can stop men looking at me in a certain way. So I'm empowered is what the left might yeah, say. So, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, that, that's fine. And then that, that obviously is the third reason that, okay, I'm wearing it for my religious reason. Uh, I'm not being forced by the society. I'm not being forced by my male guardian. Yeah. And, as, and as I said earlier, there is no, there's not much we can do about that reason. Mm. And this is also a strong reason for us not to ban the hijab. Mm. But again, it's not really a choice, is it? I mean, if, you, if it is being dictated to you by your religion, I mean, where's the choice in that? A choice would be, okay, God, I can, uh, what if I don't wear a hijab? Okay. You don't wear a job, that's fine. Now, that is a choice. A choice is a, a voluntary selection between multiple options. Mm. Now, that is not an option for, for a person who genuinely believes that a God is going to be extremely angry if I do wear, um, if I don't wear a hijab. So, um, it would be empowering in a sense that if a vessel, for example, France, right? I mean, there would be, um, or if you pass a law where we outlaw hijab, and we said, no one can wear hijab, otherwise you will have heavy fines or you'll go to jail. And then some women defy and say, no, we're going to wear it. Now, that could be a symbol of, of freedom. Yes. Um, but, but in this case, if you're wearing it because you, you're eternal, you're, your end game is you're pleasing your God. Mm. And I don't, I, I don't see that. Where, where's the choice in that? It, there's no choice. So yeah. it doesn't empower you. The, the argument that frustrates me is it seems some women uh, voluntarily don the hijab in solidarity with their Muslim sisters who are being persecuted for wearing the hijab. But that denies exhibiting a solidarity for the women who would want to be free of the hijab but who can't because of the, the, the society that they live in where they're forced to, to um, wear it. So... They're choosing to be in solidarity with one group, but not another group. It's yeah. When you're doing things in solidarity with a sister, uh, I, I think they ignore a bigger problem. But yeah, yeah. But again, as I said, it still goes down to hypocrisy in a way that if you believe that, okay, well, if the Jacinda then if she if she believes that she doesn't need to wear a hijab because mm-hmm. for whatever reason, then how can she wish the same upon uh, her other fellow humans? Yes, we recognize the part that you do have a freedom to wear the hijab and you should not be stopped from wearing a hijab only for your religious reasons. The other two reasons could be could be there and we need to do something about them, such as, as I said, societal pressure or the, or, the, or the family member's pressure. So we should do something about it, but fair enough. We can't do much about your religious because you, you live in a secular society. You, ha- you do have a right to practice your religion. But yeah. But again, but if you side with the actual hijab, not, I'm not talking about the people here. If you side with this hijab, this piece of fabric, that symbolizes so much pain and suffering for Muslim women in Muslim countries. Um, 
this Iranian human rights lawyer was sentenced to 38 years and 140 lashes. Uh, it was in the news, I think, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or probably a couple of days uh, before that. <coughs> Excuse me. And she, what was she fighting for? She was fighting for freedom from hijab and she was fighting for those women who came out in Iran and they took off the hijab and they said, we don't want to wear it. Um, what about those women? They, those women are rebelling against the hijab. So they're not rebelling against other Muslim women or Muslim people in general. They're rebelling against a piece of fabric. Mm. And so, so we have to recognize that that piece of fabric itself is nothing but a symbol of oppression. Sure, you want to voluntarily put chains on you. We can't stop you. Um, but go ahead, do it at your own free will. But we're not endorsing it. That's all we're saying. Don't endorse it. Mm. You can, of course, you can wear, wear hijab, or you can, you know. Well, well, um, it's, uh, it's an ideological decision, and ideologies are up for criticism. So, at all times, we can say, well, that's either a good or a bad ideology for this and that reason. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's up for that. So, um, so. With your book, you wrote a book, The Curse of God, Why I Left Islam, and I haven't read every word of it, um, Harris, but I skimmed through it. It's kind of, um, it's a little bit like um, uh, where Dawkins and Hitchens and that sort of wrote issues with Christianity and why there were crazy ideas in it. Uh, yours is sort of more of a Muslim folk, an Islam-focused version of those in that you've you've given for the people who aren't familiar with Islam, you know, ideas about what some of the tenets are and what the problems are with those and um, just sort of given a, for somebody who hasn't had any contact with the Islamic faith, a bit of an idea of just some of the doctrines that they mightn't have heard of before and is that a fair summation and, and how to deal with with discussing Islam? How would you describe your book? Yeah, well, I, I guess it's pretty much all of that. And, and now with hindsight, I've looked into it that uh, I could have expanded a little bit more, but uh, which I was aware of at that point. But I didn't want to I didn't want to make the book longer than 220, 30, maximum 250 pages. I mean, I, I don't know about you or other people, but I am finding it extremely hard in this day and age to read a book that is more than even more than 150 pages. It's just because. We have so much information available mm-hmm. that we can just watch a YouTube documentary for, uh, for a couple of hours, two different documentaries, and we can get the point. And when you're reading a book, yes, we got the point, but, um, but, but the, you still don't get to cover all the topics. So I was worried about that. But for example, in morality, I could have expanded. I could have expanded a little bit more on the early history of Islam. And even within Islam, there are so many other problematic things in, in Muhammad's life that I could have discussed a little bit more. But I, I yes, I am obviously... I've, Read, I read God Delusion two or three times, and um, I only read Hitchens' book once, but I watched hundreds of hours of his interviews and speeches. Mm. So I was, as I said, like those people were, um, Dawkins more so, uh, were central figures who actually educated me on these topics. Um, so my approach was somewhat similar. Uh, but I, again, I wanted to, I'm not uh, a scientist or I haven't done any PhD yet on anything. So mm. I, I wanted to keep it easy to read, simple arguments. Again, my, 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 I know most people don't know much about Islam other than the fact that oh, these guys believe in, um, in, in, in Allah and they believe Muhammad was a prophet and that's pretty much it. Or they wear a hijab or some of them tend to 
blow themselves up in crowded places. That's what the general view of the Westerners is. So yeah, they need to understand a little bit more about it. There's some, there's so many things in Islam as well, so many interpretations of Islam as well. Whereas here, Dawkins' um, book um, and also for Hitchens, there were more so um, uh, on the topic of God and with some hints or sprinkles of Christianity here and there. Where I, I focused on Islamic God, um, and that is probably one of the biggest differences. And then there are a few other things that I wanted to talk about, but the. But why I picked some of the most simplest arguments that some Western readers might think, oh, well, okay, we've heard that before, or these are simple arguments. You've got to understand there's always a new generation coming in who have never heard of these arguments before. Mm. Secondly, the, I, am, I was amazed when I communicate with Pakistani or Indian uh, religious people, whether they're Muslims or even Christians, I am amazed at how far they have fallen um, um, in, in this discourse, even the educated ones, even doctors, they ask some of the silliest questions that, uh, you know, uh, uh, an 18-year-old Western um, educated person could answer. So some of the very simple arguments like, oh, incest. Well, what are your views on incest? If you remove religion, then, you know, everyone will be will be sleeping with their, yeah. with their sisters, sisters and brothers yeah. and um, or, or, or the arguments like okay, morality and or the very simple arguments which have been heard and you know not just today but you know I mean the, the, when the Renaissance happened and the Humes and the Nietzsche's of the world when they educated us with that in, in in the Islamic world I'm telling you there's, there's, there there hasn't been any Hume you know there, there, there's no Renaissance there there's no the, all the celebrated thinkers of the Islamic world have preached about religion, and as a result, the, the population is just totally oblivious. And that's why, because now, thanks to social media, people can watch Richard Dawkins' interview. They can watch um, you know, Sam Harris's debate, and they can say, oh, okay, I never thought of this. And so, again, for that, I just wanted to put it in a book, and, and again, I am sending it. I, I've, had, I've already had a lot of um, uh, people... Muslims from Pakistan and India who said, "Well, we've changed our mind," and oh. and um, and I and I see that I see that's a, that's a great thing because even even if I die tomorrow, it would still hopefully be be improving the lives of so many people. Yeah. So just getting back to politics, as we sort of wind it up, bearing in mind people's attention span doesn't go much beyond an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, if if um, if you get lucky and you get elected as a senator for the secular party and you manage to get into parliament and um, through a miracle you hold the balance of power so that every you know group has to come to you for a yes or no vote on, on, on politics, what are some of the things that you would change about Australia if you had half a chance? Um, look again. We recognise we're not forming any government. Okay, mm. so we 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 are a small minor party with a very narrow agenda on secularism. We believe that this uh, that these issues are going to amplify even more. Australia is going to get more and more polarised if the left and right don't get the act together. But by left and right, I obviously mean the the the, the left of the centre, the right of the centre, the yeah. two major political parties. They're getting more and more hijacked by the by the extreme ends of the um, of, uh, of the politics, and this is going to get highlighted even more, um, which and we're going to pay the price for it. The only the only solution to that is true secularism, 
total transparency, no uh, affiliation with religion for or against mm-hmm. government state should stay away from it. And that is not happening. As I said, the left is appeasing the Islamist movement. The rights are become the rights are becoming more and more racist and bigoted. And that's going to amplify. We have seen this in the Western world. The rise of Trump is a, is an example. The the I've seen atheists and so-called secularist people voting for Trump, and that same thing has happened in Italy. It's the the in in Netherlands the, the right wing parties are, are gaining more momentum. Um, it, it's happening all around the Western world, and we, for the first time now, it has amplified to the extent, as I said. I mean, I'm not overplaying it, but we can see. I mean, these three liberal candidates. I mean, the, the, these uh, uh, ten years ago. They would have been the fringe of the Australian politics. They would have been on the far right to say these kind of things, what they, what they, what they have been saying. But they have come into a mainstream um, right of the centre politic, uh, political party yeah. so openly. And yes, the Liberal Party has disowned them now since then, but it's only going to get worse. The only solution to that is we need to be truly secular. We need to um, end our affiliations with with religions. It needs to uh, no association with Christianity. No um, no bending over backwards for Islamism in the name of uh, their their cultural minority. What about a minority within a minority, like the gays and homosexuals of the Muslim of the Muslim community or the feminists of the Muslim community, etc. So state just has to stay away from the religious values, religious culture, and and religion and that's what we that's a very narrow band um, that we are promoting um now as far as the other things are concerned like climate change and um you know where, where do you stand on the public transport etc we 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 do our, our policies more are in line people can go to secular.org.au and read our um policies uh that they are outlined there and there are, most of our policies are in line with uh, with, with with you know the, with labor uh, parties yeah. Social, socially and, socially progressive sort of ideas we are socially progressive yes yeah. and uh, so that and that's why that's why our grievances with 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 the labor and greens is because they they are just becoming more and more um, bending over backwards leftist appeasers which we don't want them to become um, and and, and yeah, so as I said, so sorry, just, uh, I dragged on for a little bit. So our, our very narrow band of policies that we have, uh, and, and we've seen people vote on very narrow band of uh, views. I mean, the the people. I'm, I've been getting so many emails. I've had at last check, I had received about 300 emails from people about what are our policies on Palestine, for instance, and they would only vote for if you have a pro-Palestinian policy. Mm. Um, so people do vote for a specific, very narrow band of ideas, and, and that's who we are trying to reach out to, and, and, and we're predicting this. I mean, as I said, a lot of people are getting shocked now, but we are I'm not shocked. We've been having this debate uh, over people being pushed to the right by the, by the incompetency of these far leftist people, um, and that's only going to get worse. Yeah. Well, um Harris, I wish you luck. I hope that it's a successful campaign. The difficulty will be just cutting through and actually getting some airtime uh, and getting publicity. So that's that's the hard part. I think the ideas are great. So um, stay on the line, uh, Harris. But 
Uh, dear listener, if that's the first time you've listened to our podcast, um, please subscribe. Uh, listen to a few of the other back episodes. Get a feel for us. We we talk about things that are relevant to Australians, and you know we don't have any major benefactors that we have to please. We just talk about the issues and try and discover truth somewhere out there, and it's not always easy easy to find. So. So thank you, Harris, for coming on the podcast and uh, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in and we will talk to you next time. Thank you very much. And dear listener, we'll finish off with a little bit of music from Shelley Seagal, who is an Australian musician who has got some great stuff and it deals with, uh, a lot of her stuff deals with topics related to atheism and belief in God. And here is one of her tracks called Holy Man. Up our bodies, we must show humility. I believe my body is beautiful and it belongs to me. What makes a holy man? What does he decree? There is an order to this place, and he's atop the hierarchy. I believe there's no one above me. And no one underneath But I'm a sinner, I'm a whore I'm rotten to the core And you're the holy man Well, it's to you that he confides You have God on your side And you're the holy man Yeah, you're the holy man the holy man he's calling for our souls that we must kneel beg forgiveness like it's something that we oh i believe our only stipulation is the kindness that we show but i'm a sinner i'm a whore i'm rotten to the core and you're the holy man Well, it's to you that he confides. You have God on your side, and you're the holy man. Yeah, you're the holy man. I'm a sinner, I'm a whore, I'm rotten to the core, and you're the holy man. Well, it's to you that he confides, you have God on your side, and you're the holy man. Yeah, you're the holy man. Yeah, you're the holy Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to.
and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.